At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome listeners, new and old, to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you, Walker? Fantastic. We are going to talk about some board games today, and we're going to follow the regular template. We are going to talk about the game we played exactly one year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic of the week, which is how one player at the table can ruin the game for everyone else. It's not the real topic, Mark. But if you thought I was talking about you, listeners, what mistakes have you made in your life? <laughs> I was convinced he was talking about me, but that's, exactly. that's independently. Reflect. Okay. Reflect. All right, the okay. actual topic of the week. Let's get on the same page. What that means? More later. So the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the game we reviewed one year ago, is The Castles of Tuscany, a very un-Steffenfeld Steffenfeld design. It's actually very timely, I think. True. Because at the moment, on GameFound, they have this huge deluxe game of Castles of Burgundy. 100%. And I think we talked about at the time how Castles of Tuscany did everything Burgundy did, but just quicker and better and more enjoyable. I'm, well, I, I don't recall saying that. Uh, I, I recall it saying that I found it more enjoyable and more accessible and more engaging. But it, they feel very different to me in a number of important ways. Now, the thing is, I haven't been able to play Castle of Tuscany again since we reviewed it. But that's not for lack of trying. I've suggested it a couple of times. People just haven't bit. It's got a very sort of traditional Euro presentation. But at the same time, doesn't really appeal to the core audience of Stefan Feld fans who would much rather play Castles of Burgundy. We're very much in the minority. Like, we, we play heavy Euros. We play medium weight Euros and all that, but we still have uh, a great appreciation of the lighter Euros as well. I guess the problem is that we're too enlightened and the rest of the world isn't. 
I would very much like to play Castles of Tuscany. Again. I have it at the front. It's it's in the like sort of I would like to rotate this again onto the table. It's been sitting there, but just as you said, it just hasn't made it. That's that's a bit of a shame. It's a lovely little tile layer. You get to trigger neat little bonuses. It's the kind of game where your building constraints aren't terribly onerous, and so you're constantly doing something and moving towards forward motion. It's utterly absurd as far as theming goes. There's not there's no real coherent sense of geography or anything else, but that's fine. And I altogether found it a very delightful experience, and as I said, very very streamlined for a Steffenfeld design. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting it back to the table. That is Castles of Tuscany by Steffenfeld, published by Alia Games. Mark, you are back in town. So a lot of the games, if not all of the games we played this week, we got to play together. So let's start right off the start. I was lucky enough for you to show me Unsettled. And in Unsettled, what you're doing is you have a dice system. And you're using these dice to set up the other players so that their turns are completely dictated. So you sit there and wait for your other (laughs) friends to do what's like the super fun parts. And then when it's your turn, they'll let you know how to finish it off in the boring way. Yeah, there was uh, a fair bit of quarterbacking, a fair bit of alpha gaming, just because that's how things shook out. You know how sometimes in order to advance the victory conditions, in order to advance the scenario requirements, you need to do seven things in order, but it just so happens that the same person ends up being in the seat where they have to do the sixth and seventh thing? That happened to Walker. Twice. Mark, come along on this journey of what I think is unsettled the solo game. And I'm not saying it, no, no, I'm not saying it in in a mean way. Because when you think about most uh, cooperative games, there are several end conditions, several ways that the game can end. And in most solo games, there is one and it is a timer. And this is how unsettled works. And I really feel as though unsettled will work much better as a solo game than it would be for a multiplayer game. There's no hidden information to facilitate the, 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 the sort of multiplayer solitaire experience or to help defray those sort of alpha gaming problems. I do think that there is something to be said for the feeling of it being a co-op because everybody starts acquiring their own sets of toys. And there is a certain sense of ownership over the toys. Now, the rules specify that no one is supposed to manipulate any components related to anybody else's toys. And that's a rule that we followed. And it, it does help to reinforce, but even when you don't follow that rule, it does, you do get to feel like this is my tractor beam that we're activating. I am doing a thing even though it's not on my turn. Now, that's not a huge deal. It is a minor thing. I will note that this is the second time I've played Unsettled. This is the second time I've played on the same planet. Every planet has three different conditions. And I commented a lot on last week's show about how Unsettled seeks to be a heavily narrative thematic endeavor about the atmosphere, no pun intended, of a given planet and of navigating its strange excesses. And this game, this this session of Unsettled, felt even less thematically inflected than my first. There was even less of an incentive to go off and explore. It was just about the driving victory conditions. Now, maybe that's because we're not, quote-unquote, playing properly. But if you tell me that there's a win condition and a loss condition, and I can either go advance the win condition, or I can go wander around in the wilderness and become infected, I'm going to advance the win condition. Maybe that's just me. We did heavily game it. I Don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed our playing of Unsettled. Like you said, there was the, the screaming frogs we ran into and there was... The screaming frogs were fun. There was lots of interesting things going on and and I like the way how you would find items and then they would interact with a certain part of the map. It's like you had to bring this over to here. But the the fact that you would find those places randomly were 
And we sort of fell into a very advantageous situation where we had to build a lot of buildings and the side of the map that we decided to explore first had all the building sites on it. Whereas we, for whatever reason, arbitrarily decided to go to the right, I think we would have found a lot harder go of it. Yes. And as, as a consequence of our stumbling randomly upon a lot of the things we needed easily, we had even less incentive to go muck around with the more interesting bits that Unsettled really wants to shove at us. So what we have at the end of the day is a not especially compelling optimization puzzle where there's not a whole lot of individuality and you're solving an evolving tactical situation with toys. That's not nothing, and it was still enjoyable, but as far as I'm concerned, where I'm sitting personally with Unsettled is it has one more chance. I would like to try a different planet, and I would like to see whether that different planet is able to leverage its unique planetary elements without making you feel like that's a mistake. Winora, every time you go and, and interact with the unique elements of Winora-ness, the entire group just gets hit upside the head. And so it feels like a, a very silly, counterproductive action to do. And I, I, as I keep saying, I hate it when the cool play is at odds with the smart play. And so I, I feel like Unsettled is, is a design fighting against itself, at least as Winora is concerned. So as a consequence, I am very curious to see what a different planet feels like, because I was somewhat disappointed that my second playing on the first planet felt very much like the first. Although, again, with a different layout of tiles, but that's just a function of the random draw. Oh, I'm interested in trying it again, maybe trying a different planet, like you just said, finishing off the planet, seeing if they did sort of introduce some sort of arc. I know you said every game is totally separate, but say maybe they had sort of an ongoing theme between each mission, even though they don't, you know, interact with each other, just sort of an ongoing sort of, you know, story or theme. That'd be interesting to see. I don't know. I, I'm doubtful. I'm somewhat skeptical. The, the, with, so far, I'm two plays in, and as I say, Unsettled has one more chance. So far, it has failed to impress. It has been fine. It has been okay. But it has not managed to succeed in the promise of a compelling science fiction discovery adventure. All right. Unsettled designed by Mark Needlinger and Tom Matson, Published by Orange Nebula, LLC. We get to play Sniper Elite, the board game again. This is by Roger Tankersley and David Thompson. And this time I got to be the sniper. Last time I was part of the Germans. This was a four-player game, which again is kind of sort of what the game expects you to play. We, we had previously played with three, which was a little bit awkward, but not terribly. And I'm going to have some questions for Walker about his experiences of the four-player game. But I have to say that the early positive impressions were definitely confirmed by the second experience. There were moments of discovery and gambit on both sides, tense cat and mouse chases where a cordon was tight tightening around the sniper, and there were only a couple of possible avenues of getting out. Really interesting use of the special abilities, both on the part of the sniper and of the German squads following them. And again, the map is just so well done. We should have tried a different map. In hindsight, even though there was a new player, I was just thinking, well, there's a new player, let's try the, the, the quote-unquote simpler map. I'd really like to try the other maps because if, if all of the maps are as clever and as well-designed as the quote-unquote first map, then that's really, really impressive. And really, I just, I don't want to, it's not just so much the map, it's also how the map interacts with the mechanics. 100%. Like it's, you know, there's a, a it's not sweep, is it sweep? The scan. Three, scan, there's a, sorry. Scan. Scan, there's a scan action that lets you... You have to scan in the same terrain type and just the way the map is laid out. So I just want to make sure it's just not the map. It's also how it interacts with the game. And I guess I'm just going to be on, you know, downing on the player count again. I, I didn't enjoy it at four players. Mm, that's I, I really don't think 
the actions of the soldiers is enough to keep someone engaged that much of time. It's like you're sort of just moving. You're doing two actions a turn. It's like you're not getting much done in a turn as a as a single player. And we did. T- I did talk it over with Huey a little bit on the way back. And I think it is enjoyable bouncing ideas off of another player. So I really think three is where it shines for me. Okay. Right, because then you're you're sort of have that extra uh, squad that you can sort of interact with and and cut off more actions to do. So, given that there are always three squads of Germans, you would trade that sense of ownership. Namely, with four players, there is the virtue of the three players each get their own squad. This is my squad. I get to do the thing while still communicating with the other squads, of course, and and kibbutzing about what to do. But you would rather have more control over the different pieces, even though they're all kind of more communally shared with three-player games. For the way I like to play, yes. Eminently reasonable. Other people probably would not like that way. They want to have their own guys. They want to do their own thing. But I think the way that it works, the way you need to cut people off, you're pretty well, you know, all agreeing on a certain strategy anyway. So you're just sort of... That's true. You're sort of group thinking the whole thing as it is anyway. It is basically a two-player game where one of the player roles can be split up amongst other people very much in the same way i you know arbitrarily but also by virtue of the fact that it was also designed by david thompson switch and signal is basically a one-player game that you can divvy out the roles as much as you like across other people and honestly it's a testament of the the quality of the design and how much fun the game is that when playing sniper elite with three players and it was you and i against huey as the sniper i could full well tell that we were basically splitting up the role of a single player but i still found it enjoyable and I'd still be willing to do it again. I, I can comment this time, though, that playing as the sniper is a blast. It is wonderful listening to that, your opponents talk about where you might be, knowing that you're just one step ahead or one step behind of, of where you need to be, of the tension of when that smart player pipes up and says, well, what if this thing happened? Like, they're exactly right. And then the other two players are like, no, I think it has to be this other thing. They're like, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was a marvelous, marvelous experience. Really quality game. Shame about the player count awkwardness. I, that, that's going to keep rankling at me, but still, nonetheless, excellent work. Sniper Elite, the board game. Published by Rebellion Unplugged and designed by... Roger Tankersley and David Thompson. And this is a review copy we got from the publisher. Mark, I got to go back to Hidden Leaders, which was also a review copy sent to us by the publisher. This is designed by Andreas Muller, Marcus Muller, and Raphael Stalker. It is put out by BFF Games. And it wasn't enjoyed by, I think there was one player, we did played a, a, f- a four-player game, and I think there was one player that didn't enjoy the playing, but everyone else did enjoy it. And we talked about games that fail at the very end. Court of Miracles is the game I'm going to compare it to. Because there's that, ah. at the very end, there's that one card, right? And I really feel uh, Hidden Leaders falls down to that. It's like that one player has that one card that will allow him probably to play two at once that can end the game before you have a chance to do anything. It sort of comes down to that very last turn where the game is taken away from you and you really have no control. Only the second plane, so a few more plays and that might, you know, either dissipate or reinforce. But we'll see. In Hidden Leaders, you're choosing a leader that is going to be... Uh, loyal to two different factions and these two markers are going up and down this track and all these different win conditions for different factions and you're trying to get it so your leader is uh being represented and it turns over at the end and either you win or lose it's very interesting i i enjoy it the art is amazing i look forward to trying it again well that was the concern i had expressed and i think you'd express some sympathy for the idea that the game of hidden leaders is tense 
precisely because with one or two given card plays, any of the four victory conditions can be within striking distance. If that's true, then the game might almost be, and I usually hate deploying this turn of phrase, it might almost be too balanced, because then it's just whoever gets to end the game can more or less determine what victory condition is going to apply. I certainly felt that in our second playing, where it really was the case that it was because I was able to play the last card of the game that it was determinative, but... As you say, there is certainly enough charm in him leaders and enough tension in the card play that even if it falls apart of the end game, it's sufficiently quick that I think I might be willing to forgive it those sins. I was about to say, and it might end up where it plays best if two people push towards a single faction and they it sort of takes, you know, goes far and above all the others and is definite winner. And then it's just whoever between those two is going to get the most out. So if half well, the like, table is well, I just mean, cut and, out? But, well, not so much cut out, but they're fighting against those two players. I mean, so it's a little bit of tension. They're trying to win them back. And, and there's always that tension. That, like, well, is he, you know, anyway. Maybe. Maybe. I get to play Four Science. This is by R. Eric Royce, personal friend of mine. And it's always a joy playing games with the designer when they want to see their systems being pushed to their limits. And in this particular case, I found, I think, what may be my new favorite special power in Force Science, and that is Grumps. Grumps is the worker who's been at the lab since probably before it was ever founded. And if Grumps's power gets activated, you can ignore certain kinds of blocks. You just don't build with those blocks anymore. So it doesn't matter if in this real-time cooperative dexterity game you've been handed a pattern that requires you to stack cylinder on top of cylinder on top of cylinder. If grumps don't do cylinders, you just ignore those things. Now, fascinatingly, this doesn't make your building tasks strictly easier. It makes them net easier, but conceptually it gets more difficult because suddenly you have to be able to visualize these connections, what used to just be an arrow leading from one card to another, but now you're skipping all these blank spaces. And so now you have to be able to imagine the arrow continuing past four more cards. That's bad enough. But then whatever poor soul has to verify your builds, because that's how it works in For Science, also has to ignore those connections. And so a number of times people point at, uh, but that has to lead to the cylinders. Like, I don't deal with cylinders. So then you have to watch them puzzling over those same connections. It was a fascinating inversion of the normal tasks, which again is part and parcel of what makes For Science so brilliant. You think you've played stacking games before. You think you know how to stack stuff. Well, For Science is going to make you test your stacking impulses in radically different ways. And just a number of different ways you have to combine spatial puzzles in the context of For Science, all while dealing with role specialization and special powers and time pressure. It's really an astonishing design, and I learn something new about spatial cognition every time I play, which is amazing. For Science is an utter blast. I don't play it enough. I <laughs> One of the reasons why I don't play it enough is because it's a very large box full of wood, and so it's hard to carry around, and a heavy, real-time, physically heavy, real-time cooperative dexterity game is a very, very niche sell, but it's one that I'm going to definitely have to devote the effort to more often, especially for those public game nights for people who have not necessarily seen it before. So that was For Science by R. Eric Royce and Gray Fox Games. I'll definitely bring it to the next game night, and because I do want to show this to as many people as possible. It Good call. a fantastic game. Mark, you also got to show me a game called The Stars of Akarios, designed by Brendan McKessel. McCaskill. And Jonathan Twait. Can I give the background of this game? You sure can. So Stars of Akarios, I late pledged for, and it was one of those situations where I really appreciated the late pledge option because one of the great things about pl late pledging is sometimes you don't get updates. 
And so I completely forgot about it. And I don't remember why I pledged for it at the time. I think it was, I think my thought process was, oh, I don't know, campaign game. Oh, oh, the ships look kind of pretty. I do like spaceships. Spaceships are fun. Oh, they're Canadian. Okay, fine, whatever. I think that was more or less what it came down to. Okay, fine, whatever. So then this big box arrives after more than a year of having pledged for it. And I have zero conception of what it is. Take it away, Walker. Well, I'm sure I, I'm going to go back through a couple of Pledge of Indifferences because I'm sure I talked about this. And, Did you? And inter- I'm 99% sure. Okay. And introduced it as like, here we go again, a game that wants to do everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, look, you're doing space battles. You're going down onto planets. You're upgrading your pilots. You're upgrading your ships. Yep. Wants to do everything. An epic campaign it's, spanning yeah. so many scenarios. It's going to be a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But here we go. And yet here we are. What a game. What a game. See, I think I've had, I've had this feeling twice this week, Mark. One, the first time I watched the new Batman movie, and now when I played this game, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm in, am I enjoying this so much that I don't understand why I'm enjoying this? Yeah. It is that. It, it is it is back to old Centurion or Interceptor space battles using hexes. Uh, it, it's it's much more advanced than the Top Gun game, but it's like that Top Gun game where you're playing the cards. Not totally dissimilar, yeah. Yeah, not totally dissimilar, but that same sort of feel why we enjoyed the Top Gun Less game. volleyball, though. Less volleyball, for sure. So you're doing these patterns, well, with the AI mostly, but you get to decide where your ship goes a little bit. You're using these dice to manipulate your ship. You're upgrading your weapons. Everyone had interesting different weapons that they could use, and you and it would lead into a strategy. It's like, I want to be in close doing stuff. I want to be at long range hitting... Everything about it, very interesting. We have just skimmed the top. We did... Two tutorial missions, basically. Yeah, two of the introductory missions. We have not yet started Act 1. Yeah, which were only uh, space battles. Yes. So there's a little bit of planet... Exploration. I, uh, I, no, I don't want to say cheated, but I sort of like looked at some you of... You cheated, didn't you? I did. I looked at some of the planet <laughs> cards. Yeah. And they looked very similar to Seventh Continent. Ooh, yeah. I kind of got that vibe from reading the rules about how planetary exploration works. Because, yeah, so far we've just done combat... And uh, let's be frank, the extent to which Stars of Akarios mimics Gloomhaven is astonishing. Uh, well, not astonishing in the sense that it's a good model to copy, but the resolution system is directly lifted from Gloomhaven. The scenario setup system is directly lifted from Gloomhaven. The progression systems are awfully similar to Gloomhaven. Now, how you do your actions is utterly different. It's dice-driven, and you have these very systems that correspond mostly to your ship and a little bit of spice for your pilot. Uh, but the the fact that they have a resolution deck that you can upgrade over the course of the game, and indeed the composition of the upgrade deck is exactly the same as it is in Gloomhaven, and the misses and times two cards work exactly the same way. Curses and blessings work exactly the same way. No credit in the rulebook. Shame on you. They really, really shouldn't because it's exactly the same. But, you know, if you're going to copy something, might as well copy from one of the best games of its ilk. And I agree with you. That spatial element, because in, in Gloomhaven... The movement is is usually not terribly interesting. It's like, oh, there's a trap in our way or whatever. And that's about as complicated as it gets. Here you've got these movement templates. And so you have to – there's no double guessing. So it's not like X-Wing or games of that elk because all the players go and then the AI goes. So there's no double guessing at all. But just the combination of the spatial consideration of where do I need to be and how am I going to unload my weapons because my weapons have a hex-based template – it, oh, I was I was completely blown away by how satisfying the combat was, and I am hopeful 
that later missions and once the game actually gets going, and I hope it doesn't spend too much time in the tutorial, because I don't know how complicated the ships are going to get, and I don't know how complicated the abilities are going to get, because there's always that sweet spot, right? You don't want things to be too simple, you don't want things to be too overblown, and I want to see the game actually firing on all cylinders, as it were. So We did advance quite far in upgrades and just two missions, so I am a little it's bit true. worried that... They'll pile on a little bit too much, but maybe that's just... Maybe that's just the tutorials, right? Uh, well, that and maybe, yeah. Maybe you start off with a baby ship, and yeah. they'll just give you lots of bennies after your first couple tutorial missions, and then you quickly end up with what a quote-unquote normal ship looks yeah. like. So, like we've always said, give, them a fe- give us a feel of what the game's going to offer us later, and then start us off on our mission. And if that's what it is, that would be great. One way that it does differ from Gloomhaven is how the AI... Kind of, although there are a lot of similarities. There are similarities. Every enemy has its own deck. Every pull that you resolve has its own initiative marker, and that determines the order in which they resolve. And then each card will tell you what that specific enemy does. True, but the enemies in Gloomhaven seem to act a little more intelligent than they do in this game. In Stars of Akarios, they are less keen on maximally deploying their firepower at all times because they too move by a specific hex combination. And so sometimes you end up in, in circumstances where they have a very powerful weapon, but it only fires in a straight line. And as anybody who's navigated hex boards can tell you, well, sometimes even if you're trying to close on the enemy, if you only fire in a straight line, sometimes that's not going to work out. True. Like the cards make complete sense. It's can they shoot? No. Then they sort of do this one hex shimmy over to the side right. to shoot again. But they're 15 hexes away. <laughs> yes, it's true. So so they're like three turns out from any combat. Yes. Why aren't they just, you know, beelining it to get in there? So other than that, I wish there was a little, you know, I just love Jagged Alliance. Jagged Alliance 2, you know, they did this, you know, you could move as fast as you want outside, but then as soon as you became, you know, inside of an enemy, then it would stop and go to turn base. So that sort of thing. Like right. they zoom in, as soon as they get into range, then they start using these AI cards. I think that would just make much more sense. Unlike Gloomhaven, Gloomhaven, you would have to do this sort of triage, right? You're in a room and there's a whole bunch of enemies and like, okay, these enemies are in our faces. We have to work fast to finish them off before the next wave hits us. In Stars of Akarios, we never felt that pressure. It was more a question of which target do we want to dogpile on next? And then we all have to try to figure out, in a very, very fun way, we then try to maximize our abilities to then go dogpile on that enemy and deploy our firepower very well. But we never had to worry about the ships that were on the other side of the board. It wasn't even just a question that they would take too long to get there. It's that they would always be doing these, as I said, as you said, weird shimmies. When you're right up next to them, those weird shimmies are very effective and can throw off your plans and can lead them to hitting you and you having a difficult time hitting them back. But that's only after you've taken the fight to them. So I agree with you that the AI is sometimes a bit questionable in Stars of Akarios. So this is a great Kickstarter published by Oom. Played another game of Omicron Protocol. Omicron Protocol is the skirmish game in a box by Brendan Kendrick and Bertie Lynn of Dead Alive Games, fulfilled after a successful Kickstarter. And this time I tried the solo mode. And I was a little bit dubious about the solo mode until I actually saw it come into practice. Because in a normal game of Omicron Protocol, as I've mentioned, there's a third-party antagonist that are hostile to both sides. Basically like zombies. They're basically high-tech zombies, cyberpunk zombies. 
And I was a little bit worried that they wouldn't provide enough of, of a challenge and that they wouldn't react dynamically enough, more to the point, even if they could be challenging enough. The way it works is it's, it's awfully clever, and I'd, I'd like to see this copied with attribution in future games. Every time an enemy spawns, you pull a random card from a deck, and it corresponds to the six different sculpts of antagonists. And what was just a cosmetic difference before is now a gameplay function, because what that means is it will add a special ability to that type of antagonist. So say you spawn one of figure one. Well, that figure one has a certain ability. And then you spawn one of figure two and then a figure four, but then randomly you spawn another two of figure one. Suddenly that's three spawns you've done of the first figure class. They each have three different special abilities now. And now they're suddenly extremely dangerous and you're highly incentivized to go kill one of them because every time you kill one, you get to strip one of the cards of your choice. But is it a pain to track because you not, did it solo. Not no? remotely. Okay. The, the pain of resolving the enemies was not difficult at all. But I'm glad you brought that up because I had commented previously that in the games that the game that I had played of Omicron Protocol, we each had two characters, and I thought that was roughly a good quantity given the number of special abilities they all had. In the solo mode, and I'm told in the quote-unquote full game, complaints about that later, you play with four characters out of the available six. I consistently missed applying some of the special abilities of each of my characters as a consequence. Is it reasonable to insist that a skirmish game with lots of special powers, you be able to successfully remember all of your abilities on the first play? I'm not sure. I go back and forth on this issue. I personally find it rather frustrating when I feel like, oh, I forgot about that cool thing. I forgot about that other cool thing because I'm just drowning in too many modifiers. Maybe that's the kind of system that rewards repeat experience in a pleasant way, but personally I think that uh, maybe three characters might have been a sweet spot, or possibly just slightly less complexity than each individual character, but then maybe you don't have the same level of personality. As I say, I am not 100% sure, but I was forgetting to apply some things with four characters in Omicron Protocol. Now, in the full game, you're also supposed to, in the full versus game, you're also supposed to have four, four characters. I didn't know that because Omicron Protocol has four rule books. And that little factoid is buried in the third of rule books that you're supposed to read because there's a how-to-play document and a learn-to-play document and then a rules reference. And the full setup instructions are split up across the how-to-play and learn-to-play, but even then, that's not the full setup version. The full setup version has additional factoids from the rules reference, which is not a strict alphabetical rules reference, but also apparently telling you how to play the full real game. So I'll take some of the responsibility, but I think that our alive bears some of the responsibility too. Well, if they, that's like the fantasy flight method. I'm surprised they didn't use the fantasy flight method for dealing with uh, the characters, because usually what they do is just give the two characters more actions as though they were four characters, and that sort of helps you remember the abilities. Now it's only two characters, but you're using them as four. Yeah, I, I don't know. As I say, I'm somewhat conflicted about what the ideal count would be in terms of characters. Thinking back across the universe of boxed skirmish games, I have to say that Omicron Protocol is among the best that I've played in terms of giving you a full game out of the box. Now, one of the things that uh, Josephus, the person I played the previous game of Omicron Protocol, uh, Protocol with, we compared it unfavorably to Aristea. Aristea, although not really a skirmish game, more of kind of sort of almost a sports ball game, but feeling very much like a sports ball game. We felt that Aristea had a slightly better balance in terms of individualized characters with comprehensible sets of special abilities, as well as being a very, very dynamic game in terms of movement being an overwhelming consideration, as opposed to Omicron Protocol frequently devolving into scrums. And 
that's all true, but Aristea out of the box doesn't give you the same degree of character variety and faction flavor that Omicron Protocol does. And so in terms of that, in terms of the scenario variety and so forth, I have to say that Omicron Protocol is a very, very impressive and compelling package. And I'm eager to go back to it. I like the resolution system. I like the action system. The scenarios so far, as I say, have been a little bit hit or miss. The solo system is awfully clever. And I do think uh, it is worth putting in the effort to get to the place where you can successfully resolve all of those weird character abilities, uh, such as my fondness for the system. And so it gets almost everything right. And in terms of value for uh, a self-contained box, in terms of an actual game, not some sort of starter pack or not some sort of basis for buying endless expansions, which Aristea is sometimes guilty of. I have to say that Omicron Protocol is a very satisfying entrant in a genre for which I have a great deal of enthusiasm. Do, do you feel as though it would work at four-player, like, teams? I think so, especially since if a lot of them are new, two players, uh, two characters are already overwhelming enough, or at least engaging enough, to put it in a slightly more positive spin. So that's the other, that's the other side of the coin, because as I say, the first game I played, I only played two characters, and I didn't feel like I was playing half a team. I felt like I had a full team, and I was able to give lots of choices to which kind of characters I wanted to focus on. And so I think this might, again, be one of those skirmish games where four-player games don't feel like a bastardized version of the real experience. Nice. So that is Omicron Protocol, designed by Brendan Kendrick and Bernie Lynn, published by Dead or Alive Games, and this is a review copy we got from the publisher. Mark, I went back to Ark Nova again. Now, one might think that I've been playing it so much that I enjoy Ark Nova. <laughs> and to be true, I do enjoy Ark Nova. Yes. So I'm going to compare it to Terraforming Mars, like we've already done. I'm also going to compare it to Wingspan. These are all games that rely very heavily on card draw. And they also have very fun mechanisms to move around. So they're a joy to sort of play and and watch how these mechanisms all interact with each other and these combos that you create with these cards. But in the end, like we always say, it all depends on, you know, your card draw and how you manipulate that deck. So as I enjoy playing Arc Nova and Terraforming Mars and Wingspan, there are no circumstances in which I would choose to play any of those games. And this is Arc Nova, designed by Mathis Wiggy and published by Feuderland Spiel. Got to play Warp Gate by Artem Nichiparov and Wolf Designer. We are currently in one of the recurring installments of a long-running series, Screw You Canada, waiting for our delivery of Guards of Atlantis 2. Americans have it, many Europeans have it, lots of Asians have it. But no joy for Canadians, Walker. They just hate us, Mark. That's they just fine. hate us. Yeah, yeah. Artyom Nechaparov, uh, the, the designer of Guards of Atlantis, uh, has some sort of deep-seated antipathy towards Canadians, and that's why he's making us wait. I understand. It's, yeah. it's, it's if he wants to be that way, we can't really, you know, you be you. Okay? I, I, look, we can't change his mind. He, he's just, that's the way he is. But uh, he has designed a number of excellent games, and so Warpgate is his almost kind of sort of 4Xy game, which is incredibly streamlined, very, very quick, and very much in your face. And this game was very much in that sense. I was exploiting a very trade-heavy strategy. My opponent, on the other hand, went on the warpath and beat my fleets from one end of the galaxy to the other, but I was just desperately trying to hold on to my trade routes. It was it was great. I really really enjoy Warpgate. There was a uh, game found campaign recently for an expansion, Warpgate Beyond, for a new deck of cards, which is going to change the somewhat controversial but I think very satisfying objective system that you're going to find in the base game. 
And I have yet to have uh, a bad experience with a Wolf Designer or Artem Nichiporov game. His, his designs have been so consistently excellent. And I'm looking forward to all his future output. So that was Warpgate by Artem Nichiporov and Wolf Designer. Lastly for me, we all played with Chip the Third because it's his favorite game, I think, Shards of Infinity. This is designed by Gary Arendt and Justin Gary, published by Ultra Pro. And it is, in my opinion, one of the best deck builders out there. It has a lot of things going for it. Everyone's uh, purchasing cards from a common draft that is constantly rotating. You get to... Uh, there are mercenaries in that drafting pile that you can do as one-offs, so you're not bogging down your deck with cards you don't want. Very interesting art. Very all faction-specific stuff that you can get your deck working, you know, with all sorts of combos. Lots of things going on. Shards of Infinity. And those are the games we played last week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker. Yes, Mark. Are you the kind of human, I mean this sincerely, I don't know, are you the kind of human when in a big box store, if you have a couple of minutes, will you take a detour through the toy aisle? Yes. I am very much the kind of human that will do that. And that is one of the silver linings of living in the United States of America, because their toy aisles put our toy aisles to shame. One of the things that I've encountered through my digressions through toy aisles were things called snap ships. Now, these are spaceships, and as I've already made clear, I am fond of the spaceships. And you can snap on little accessories and little little weapon pods and maybe little fuel pods and radar domes and other kinds of things. Now, have I acquired any of these snap ships? No, because they're not in a scale that would work for any game. They're not in a scale that would work for anything. And my shelf space is already occupied by a number of toys. I was going to say that was going to be my first question. What scale are these snap ships? The, they're not really scaled to much of anything. So why don't they make a game out of it, Walker? Snapships Tactics! I am already obsessed with this. There's going to be crowdfunding later this year. They've turned it into a spaceship pew-pew game where you build your spaceship at the start of the game and then you physically build your spaceship at the start of the game. I am all over this. There is no chance, I think, that it is going to be 
quality game design. <laughs> but you get to play with the toy and build and snap on your little thing. Maybe it'll be good game design. I don't know. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be the thing that surprises us all. Maybe it'll pull someone in. Who knows? But uh, I cannot wait to play Snapship's Tactics. Mark, I got some a couple of great pieces of news from Simon Games. Even better than Snapship's Tactics? Uh, so much better. Could anything compare to Snapship's Tactics? Well, Cyberpunk 2077 was such a breakthrough video game. Oh, it was broken, all it, right. It... <laughs> ha Zing! Uh, so, that, you know, if it's such a great video game, why not make a board game, right? Yeah. So they brought Eric Lang in, and they're going to make gangs. Cyberpunk, it's going to be great. Secondly, you, didn't, you thought that was good. Well, gear up, Mark, because it's it's zombicide, gear up, roll and write zombie game. Whew, uh, flip and write, probably. So, man, two great pieces of news from Simon. I can't wait not to buy either one. <laughs> so, Dan Versen Games, DVG, the publishers of the Valiant Defense series, which are the solo game designs of David Thompson is running a Kickstarter now for reprints of some of the games of that catalog, specifically Pavlov's House and Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms, which, quite frankly, I think are the two best games in that series. Two most excellent historical solitaire war games. They're also reprinting the Warfighter dice. Uh, the Warfighter uh, games, when originally published, came with these dice that were supposed to mimic a uh, 9mm shell and a 7.62mm shell. They were a clever concept. They didn't quite work because they didn't stop rolling. <laughs> so they say they've remachined them and everything works now. Uh, but I, I'm not terribly interested in those dice. But if you're interested in picking up the reprints of Pavlov's House and or Soldiers and Postman's uniforms, you can go find the DVG reprints and dice on Kickstarter right now. Last thing for me, Mark, we enjoy Ian Brody's work. He is putting out a new game called War of the Ring Card Game. It's supposed to be heavily based off of his sort of war-like card system, but no board. It'll be just the cards, so that'll be interesting to check out if that's your sort of theme that you love. This is going to be published by Ares Games. We can hope that it will be interesting and fun. This is one of those things where I really, really like the designer, have no interest in the source material, so we'll have to see. Happy Pride Month, Walker. Happy Pride Month, Mark. Category is deck building game. Drags to Riches is on Kickstarter right now. It is the deck building game of making a drag superstar. I approve. Tens, tens, tens across the board. I am very much looking forward to helping this along. I don't know if it's going to get funded. Right now it's uh, looking like it's a little bit over halfway there. But if you're going to have a deck building game, why not make a drag building game? That is Drags to Riches on Kickstarter now. And why are you gagging? I bring it every episode. Finally for me, Micro Macro Crime City. There is yet more Micro Macro Crime City after the base game and then Full House. There's going to be Micro Macro Crime City all in coming this September 22nd. So it's just a third map, you think? Or do they? It's a third map, okay. more, third map, more cases. All right. Nothing fancy. Well, you don't have to be fancy. Which is good. Yeah. Why? Fancy is drags to riches. Why ruin? Crime City can just be more Crime City. It's true. So now on to the topic which is let's get on the same page, which is, Mark, why can't we have a universal iconography system for, oh, wow. for all of board games? I didn't know you wanted that level I, of standardization. Oh, yeah. And oh, I man. Want, and I want keywords to mean the same thing throughout all board games. Oh, well, that, I, that I, okay, yeah. 
that I'm a little bit more with you. There's this, you brought up this idea that there's a lot of standardization across a lot of other fields. Not necessarily the level of containerization, for example, but there's still a lot of fundamental disagreements in board games such that you have to kind of relearn a new universal universe every time you get a new product. And it's draining and I'm tired of it. There are some things, though, that I think are more important than others. Some things I'm willing to go to the ramparts for, and I think that all publishers should get on the same page. I don't know about universal iconography, but I'll give you a chance to sell me on the well, idea. Well, Mark, just think of how much money and the environment would be saved due to independent language, because you wouldn't have to have vocabulary on multiple pieces. All Everything could be iconography, and you could have just the rule book or just a few things with multiple languages, and it would save so much money in paper and our precious trees. <laughs> Okay, first of all, what has a tree done for you lately? But moving past that, I'm not convinced sometimes iconography works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, we've complained in the past with games where with iconography that was too cumbersome. Agreed, but if it was the if same. It was always the same. Okay. If it was always the same, you see, there'd be less mistakes. The rules would be more clear. You'd be able to learn the rules far more quickly because you'd recognize what all of these icons meant already and they'd always be the same. I have no... <laughs> Oof. I, I, I don't know, man. You're, you're, you're pitching me a utopian vision, but I think it would have to remain utopian. Like, just the notion of drawing a card. How could you... How can you have a universal icon to draw something when sometimes you're drawing a card, sometimes you're pulling a tile from a bag, sometimes you're drawing a hexagonal tile from a stack, some, I, sometimes you're drawing a card from the table, sometimes you're drawing a card from the discard pile and stuff. I don't think you can make these universal icons. Well, it would, they'd have to come up with something. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's as far as, if that's as far as you've gotten, I don't think. Well, I'm sorry that I didn't design the entire thing. <laughs> Implement my five-page six... Well, look, look, we've played enough games with enough iconography systems whereby, you know, sometimes we can kind of get a gist. You you love figuring out what a set of icons means. And I don't necessarily know that we found a game where you could point to and say this. All games should look like this for their icons. True. We are, I'm probably, I'm sure we're at the end of our, our little list here. We have a bunch of games that we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, I've got tons of examples of things that have been well-standardized or not well-standardized. So do you have any reasons why we shouldn't do this? I, I do have, like, because a lot of games, the iconography, they've sort of... Uh, I think I just gave you a reason. Well, true, that's the that's the logical reason. <laughs> <laughs> of course it would never happen, right? But just think of... Well, no, but as I said, like, you can't, I don't think... No, but you wouldn't need iconography for every single part of the game, but for the... If you want to make it language independent, it would have to be. I didn't say everything language independent. <laughs> I said most things. <laughs> this is a moving target. Exactly. So anyway, theme. A lot of games that we've yes. seen have incorporated the theme into their iconography, and it, it gives you this whole feel, and I think as though if you've made... It would have to break that sort of standardization. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want, say, a game, a fantasy game designed by Jim Felly to use the iconography from a sci-fi game designed by Tom Lehman. I don't think it would work. And the other reason why it wouldn't work was because every designer would say, well, I can do this better. This standardized iconography is 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 bogus. <laughs> I'm obviously way smarter than that. My iconography <laughs> will be way more clear than the standard iconography. I think your criticism is well-founded. I think it is perhaps sometimes misdirected. It is not always the designer. It is often the developer or the graphic designer. It is true. And that is one of the reasons why we don't like, well, one of the reasons why I'm often skeptical of the work of Eno Tool, because I've yet to see an Eno Tool set of iconography. 
where I could point to it and say, yeah, yeah, this is great. They can't even get it right off the hop, Mark. There's three things on the outside of a box that you'd think that they could just standardize across the board, but they can't even get that. Like the That's length of the game, the number of, the number players, of players, and the age. Yeah. Though different iconography for all that stuff. You'd think that could just be the basic part. The fact that they can't even get that right means that we have no hope for this <laughs> ever happening. You know, you, you you might be able to sell me on that being universalizable. We could, we could come up with a... I think a fairly straightforward universal basic system for those criteria. And if, if no, if, if nothing else, it would at least encourage people to always have that on the box because more often than not, the age ranking is, is kind of nonsense, especially since, you know, everyone on board game, Geek loves talking about my two year old plays Kalos. Ha ha. Uh, but setting that aside and the time played is mostly a lie, but it gives you a vague gist. Sometimes that you, you just have trouble finding the number of players, and that's obnoxious. But if we had a standardized version of how to present all these three pieces of information and where to put them in the box even, that might be helpful. The graphic designers would pitch a fit, but whatever. Exactly. Packs of cards cannot have the name of the company, nor the name of the game. And they have- Nor the name of the game? No. No? No, and because no. they have to be able to turn- Okay, I, okay. so rotational symmetry is indeed one of those things that I have there. I don't necessarily agree that rotational symmetry is desirable or necessary for all games. I don't mind having to orient them all the same way in some cases, because then at least you're guaranteed of picking them up and the card is going to be face up. If you're anal, like I am, and you keep the cards all facing the same way, you can at least be guaranteed that every time you pick it up, it'll be facing the right way. And if you don't care, you don't care anyway, so that's fine. But I will say this. I have been playing hidden role games and social deduction games for decades. And the resistance to Avalon, to Secret Hitler, to Quest, they don't have rotational symmetry in the cards you play secretly. Come on, it's not that, like, some cards, it's really important not to know who played what. And to have to sit around a table full of people and remind them, everyone play the card in the same orientation before we shuffle them up, so we don't see who spoiled the mission. I'm sick to death of that, and you'd think that that is a lesson that games of that ilk would have standardized a long time ago. You can make some really attractive and really thematically evocative rotationally symmetric card backs. It angers me a great deal, Walker. It's true. You could even have the name on the back, but just have it in four spots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Sniper Elite Board. So when the Sniper plays, uh, this was actually pointed out by Huey, the Sniper has a dry erase board where they plot their moves, so you don't know where they are. The Sniper Elite Board is rotationally symmetric. So you can rotate the board so the enemy players can't look at what section of the board you're writing on and make too many inferences about where you actually happen to be. They put something on the back of the board, but they made it rotationally symmetric. So good job, guys. All right, so some key, because we've already talked about this before. Round versus phase versus turn. Yes. Maybe we shouldn't go into it again, but Well, no, on. but it, I, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's worth emphasizing because although we agree that it needs to be standardized, our argument gets undermined if we can't immediately agree on how it ought to be standardized. So round, turn, and phase, okay? Which is the biggest of those? Uh, round. What is the second biggest of those? Turn. Okay, we're on the same page. There there can be many phases to a turn and many turns to a round. And, of course, many rounds to a game, necessarily. This is one of the reasons why we did some misplays on our first playing of Black Rose Wars. Because they use turn to mean round. And so we would see these abilities that could trigger once every turn and we'd get very confused. So true. There at least, and this, again, I think speaks to the difficulty in standardization. And I'm sure many people have been thinking about this already. 
there are language barriers. <laughs> and indeed, uh, there were, uh, in the case of Black Rose Wars, I remember specifically on some of the forum discussion, some Italian speakers coming forward and say, yeah, I speak Italian. There's no defense for this. But sometimes there is by virtue of translation issues. I still think it's an important thing to be done. But uh, yeah. Then there's color problems. So like when they have, sometimes I've when in all the games I looked at, a lot of them have sort of like a red outline around the currency or something, which means when it's red outlined, it means that it's a, a cost. It's spent, to, yeah. But then they put this on top of a red background and sometimes you can't see it very well. And, and sometimes there's a color blindness problem. And so it's not working right. Or there's a color matching problem because the actual color of the currency based on the color of the cards and, and the iconography doesn't match the color of the tokens and all of this issue. I have to say as a non-colorblind person and as people who do not regularly play with people who suffer from any of the kinds of color, color blindnesses, I have to feel that as an observer, the industry has gotten a lot better over the course of the past few years. I remember back five to 10 years ago, or maybe even longer ago than that, it was rare that a publisher went to the effort of putting in icons to match colors, for example. It's like, okay, well, all the red cards are going to have a little plus in the corner. All the green cards are all going to have a little wavy line in the corner. So people who are colorblind will be able to differentiate them. Now I feel like it's a lot more common. Not universal, but a lot more common. And then the first game that I had problems with this were uh, Great Western Trail, Alexander Fister, because some of the, the icons were like sort of like minus three in red. And now, yes. now is that, is that, you know, is, is that a discount or it's in red? Does that mean it's an extra cost or does that mean it only costs the three? Yeah. Or? Redundant information will kill you because we're, as gamers, we're trained with a very strict set of pragmatics. We assume that anything in that iconography has to mean something. And so we understand circled in red means a cost, but we always also understand minus three means less. So less of a cost or are we losing the money? The same thing happened in, especially my first play of Unsettled. Because I was, you know, learning it with everybody else. I'd read the rules previously, but on the player boards, there's some information on the player boards that is kind of redundant with the iconography and some that's kind of not. I would be very much in favor of a universal standard of omitting redundancies wherever possible. Have as many redundancies as you want in the rule book, right? Say the same thing five times different, uh, different ways. But if I'm supposed to be able to follow a procedure on a board, if there's any redundant information, I'm going to get confused. And then when you're using iconography, when you have too many resources, it's going to make it ridiculous. Like Titan, the new game that I'm playing, it has like six different kinds of minerals. So trying to match these six different colors of minerals to all of the tokens and cards and two of them are very like one's clear and one's white and knowing which ones are which. Yeah, but, it now, is but now we're well past standardization though. Now you're saying that they should have designed the game differently. It's true. <laughs> which we can all, well, it's all well and good to say that, but. And then we have uh, sort of maps like in skirmish games or war games, mm -hmm. they have these very beautiful maps, but they want to put on sort of difficult terrain or, or some, some icons on the map, but they don't want to, it, it's very pretty. So they don't, they, they don't want to ruin it. So they make it faded and, and sort of work it into the color of the map. So you like completely miss it and you don't even see it. You're talking about Batman again, aren't you? Oh, I'm talking about Batman. Yeah. You're talking about Batman. I, I have to feel that there is a, a, a pretty solid standardization of making diff different kinds of terrain clear. They're not all as clear as say the sniper elite map, which only has a small number of terrain types. But there has been progress made there. So I think it's safe to say that Batman is just the outlier. 
All right, forced to reveal your hand. Bad iconography, too much iconography. You're not understanding. Now you have to ask and show the table your card that, you know, you don't want to show the whole table, but you're now forced to. Sure. I mean, we can all agree that ideally games should have better iconography. I would perhaps point out that if you're willing to let iconography be unique to the game and tailored to the game experience and not standardized, that might help that problem sometimes. And then make them accessible. Don't hide, you know, the icons in the rulebook somewhere. Have them on the back of the rulebook. Yes, references need to be on the back of the rulebook. Or a separate card. This yeah. is this is happening more often, Mark. This is happening more often where it is a card game that doesn't have player aids. Yes. And for some reason, it drives me insane. Now, I've learned recently that there is an advantage to putting out a game that is exactly 52 cards. Yes. Plus the two jokers and the ad card. Or sometimes 110. It really depends on the size of the sheet. It's it's really... But still, printing those few extra cards yes. in a card game, and if you don't have it, for whatever reason, just drives me no end to insane. Well, there are a couple... We we, we just praised Stars of Akarios. There are two things that Stars of Akarios does that drive me nuts. One of them is what we've already talked about. There are player aids, and the player aids will summarize the various conditions that might be applied to you or to your enemy. For example, slow, or target lock, or radar blocked, or what have you. And it doesn't tell you what those do. It just shows that the picture is there, and it says that this picture means that the radar blocked. Gee, thanks. I still have to go look it up in the book anyway. Now, sure enough, on the player aid, it gives me a a page, but that's literally all that card serves to do. They could have just written the page 22 in giant block letters, and it would have been as useful as the quote-unquote reference they already gave me. Well, at least not as bad as Batman. Remember Batman? It was just like... like (laughs) I do remember Batman. 52 different symbols. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my good Lord. (laughs) The other thing that Stars of Akarios does, and this, I'm amazed whenever I encounter this. This is actually my next note. Not even Stars isn't there, but exactly what I was about to say. If you're going to be resolving multiple effects on a card... List the things from top to bottom in English. Obviously, if it's a different language, you know, it doesn't have to be left to right. It could be right to left if it's a different language, obviously. But put it in the same order that the reader is going to read it. When you pull an AI card from Stars of Akarios, you start from the bottom. I don't know why they did this. It's not nearly as bad as the worst offender of this, which is editions one and two of Arkham Horror, where you had to do four things on the card, and you literally just have to memorize the order they have. You jump around all over the place on the card, <laughs> and the order really, really matters. It should be from top to bottom, left to right, or in, or in other words, the order in which the reader is going to read it. It is unforgivable to do otherwise, and I don't know why Stars of Carriers does it that way. There's only one excuse, and that's if you're ever going to be tucking cards. This was pointed out by somebody on Twitter. If you're going to be tucking cards, sure, then you can mess with that because you have to. But jeez, why? Oh. Yep, the, my point is the size and location. So Dune Imperium does this thing where they use the, exactly the same icons on the same space. And one is the cost and one is what you're going to get. There are spaces there that take water to go there. Right. And you get water back. And there's no minus, there's no red outline, there's no nothing. It's just that the the size is a slightly different size and it's in a different location. Not not great. I don't remember it ever being an issue, but to non-gamers it might have been. And... Mage Knight does this to such a fantastic degree where they have these little monster tokens. They're like maybe one inch in diameter 
and there's so much information, but because where they place it, it's like their abilities are near their health, the their attack modifiers are, are on the other side near their attack number, and they do put so much on that one token, but just because of the size of the different icons and where they're located on that little token makes everything so clear. I agree. Let me let me ask you another intuition because you, you talked about the cost of locations and the effect of locations. So say you've got a deck builder or any any type of game where you have to purchase cards and then you might be using cards later on. Say there's a card that both both costs some amount of money to buy and will generate some amount of money after you've bought it. You with me? I'm with you. Which of these two numerals should be bigger? The one where you get the money. Why? Because it's going to come into play more often. Exactly. I, I could not agree more. There are games where it's inverted and it drives me batty. Why is it the case that once the card is mine, once it's in my hand, the big number is the one I don't care about? Because it's not going to matter. Well, sometimes you have effects where it's like trash a card, gain stuff according to its purchase cost. Maybe. I don't know. Now, sure. On the table, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to read. That's okay. And obviously, I'm not suggesting that the print needs to be be super tiny. Sometimes you have to make compromises for usability just so people can read it across the table. But I don't understand where, when there's plenty of room on the, on, on the, the card, it's not perfectly clear that the one that you're going to be using more often is the bigger one. So then I looked at, uh, so there's sometimes they have too much on uh, some cards or icons. And I was looking at a bunch of games today, and Gollum has this one part of the iconography where it's sort of the library and it's pronounced library library yeah i've and, been to school i know these things and you flip over these tokens and you get candle uh, menorahs and this is a big part of end scoring and but every time you put a card on the top of this token you get benefits you start at the bottom and you work up but the menorahs are also printed on there but you don't get the menorahs over and over again you only get the things that are to the yeah. right of the menorahs and so when we first played I got, you know I mean? It wasn't a problem to me, but I, it was a problem to everyone else. And I could see immediately why you would infer that. It says you start at the bottom and you get yep. everything working up. And it's like, well, the Menara's there, but they don't actually count. Well, which, which reminds me of another problem of standardization. Every game, most games, for example, Planet Unknown, as you advance a marker up a track, you get the thing when your marker gets to the track. You remember Praga Caput Regni? Where it's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Even though the marker isn't covering the track and the track is above where your marker is, it's only the stuff to the left of where your marker but is. But only on that track. Only on that track. On the, Elsewhere. The, yeah, the exactly. track just to the right of it, it's, it's totally the other way. Not one. only do they buck universal expectations, they buck the expectations that they set elsewhere in their own game. It's true. At the very least, at the very, I think we can agree, the very least, you should be consistent. <laughs> Failing that, I think that there are some universal intuitions. I remember reading an article about video game design uh, a while back. And this was, I think, back in the days of uh, PlayStation 1, but that doesn't matter. And it was saying, if you're designing a platformer, or indeed most games where you can jump, you need to have a very, very good reason to not put jump as the bottom most face button. And even then, you should probably still put it at the bottom most face button. Why? Because that's what everyone else does. And you're going to confuse people and cause missed inputs if you just decide to buck the trend and be different. That's right. Space and bars I, jump. Yeah, Straight up. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and I think that a lot of these things boil down to there's a set of universal expectations. And sometimes they're arbitrary. Very often there's good reasons for them. Don't try to be special. 
as the as the title says, let's get all on the same page here. Agreed. I pulled in a bunch of games today to look at, you know, all of this iconography. Toku is another one where you talked about earlier. It's like, oh, you can't have icons for everything. Well, <laughs> Toku does a pretty good job. And, and it is actually good. They have they have this symbol that's the cost, and they have this other symbol that's very similar, but a different color, which is the cost, but with a discount. Yes. They have a universal, you know, thing for draw because uh there's draw off the deck, there's draw from the table, there's see there you go. Actually, Batoku is the great example. I don't think you could submit Batoku to a universal system of iconography. The Batoku iconography is pretty good, and I think it would defy a universal system. Could, but I'm just saying the draw was good because the draw was the same for every deck, no matter what you did. It was always draw two, pick one. And that's why I like that. If you were drawing from the deck, yes. Yeah, and that's why I like where it had the, like the universal symbol, so it would be the same, so you understood that. Well, am I doing this? Is that, do I draw one? Do I draw two, pick one? And it's like, of course you do, because it's the same symbol. Right. So I thought that was great. Gugong is another one. There are seven action spaces and there's multiple ways to use each one. And the iconography is on the board. You don't need to memorize what all the action spaces do. It's all on the board. It's very, you know, makes sense. And then it also has something that I love in some games where they have an icon for different phases and or different rounds and or different turns, right? right. And it makes everything so much more clear. And I uh, roll for the gal, not, sorry, uh, well, both roll and race for the galaxy. Race for the galaxy is what I meant. Is has it the best, right? Because on the bottom of the card, it'll tell you which phase that card's going to trigger in. Makes the game so much easier. Yeah, clearly delineated phases. Even if your turn only has three phases, clear or or even two phases for what it's worth, uh, in a given round or in a given turn, if you clearly identify those, that was one of the big advancements for the newest edition of Cosmic Encounter. Previous versions of Cosmic Encounter tried to play fast and loose with that, and as a result, there were timing arguments endlessly. There are still timing arguments about the newest version of Cosmic Encounter, but thankfully, they're much reduced because of a relentless focus on itemizing what happens when. All right, I only have two more things. Gutenberg, when we played it, even when I play it, there's always a a problem between there are two incomes, victory points and money. And they switch back and forth between these, and sometimes it's hard to, not hard to swing, dis- distinguish, but sometimes you make a mistake and you take money when you should have taken victory points. And lastly, there are two things that are done very well, is that we are almost on standardized iconography with income. A lot of games use the hand symbol underneath the thing. Yes. And every not most gamers will know that that means income. So you, during the income phase, you'll get that the Italian designers, this is weird. This is an instance of like sub special, uh, sub standardization. They don't use the hand. They often use the exclamation point. If it's a game by Simone Luciani and I see something with an exclamation point, I know what that means is this is income and you get it now. Just because he, he consistently uses that. Across. I don't know if it's his idea or if it just happens to be the people he works with at Cranio that came up with that, that system. But you see it in Barrage. You see it in more or less all of his games. If it's got an exclamation point, that means income end right now. So that's something that they all do very well. Something that games do very poorly is how many times you get to do something. So a lot of cards or tokens will say, spend this amount of currency and then get this benefit. But some of them will say, do it three or more times. Some will say four more times. And some of them will say nothing at all. And you're supposed to just imply that that means once as opposed to as many times as you want. Maybe it does mean as many times as you want, but you'll never know. You'll have to look it up. Many games use the arrow and then numbers. 
X1, X2, X3. Sometimes there's a, I would prefer if the, if it would be arrow with an X1 instead of just saying, well, if there's an arrow with no number, that just means you get to do it once. But I've seen a lot of different, different games use that iconography. Okay, so the, there are a couple of other elements of standardization that don't really deal with graphic design and presentation uh, in the same way that I would like standardization. One of them is rulebook formulas, or, or at least basic setup. Omicron Protocol has four rulebooks. I think that's three too many. <laughs> I, I am very thankful that the fantasy flight model is very seldom seen anymore. You don't tend to have the two rulebook model. I, I've said the same thing for years, and I'm going to keep saying it. I don't care how many rulebooks you have, so long as at least there's one comprehensive rulebook that I can refer to in an easy manner. So the hallmark for this for me are the CGE games, specifically Space Alert and Mage Knight. They have other learn-to-play documents, but at the end of the day, once you've graduated past the learn-to-play document, there is the single rulebook that has everything you need in it. Now, an example of the CG game that did very badly was the earlier printings of Through the Ages, where you had to remember when the concept was introduced. Is this an advanced game concept? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but that, that that's an entire topic unto itself. And another thing about standardization is I, I really wish we could all get on the same page about what inserts are for. Now, yes, everyone will show up and say, well, you know, the only purpose of an insert is to protect the components during shipping. Anything past that is gravy. Yeah, yeah, fine. Setting that aside. Because we've recently encountered several inserts. Uh, Wonderland's War was a good example. I've got a game that I keep wanting to play more, Cleos, that, that's another example, where there are lovely bits of engineering. Really, really impressive. Everything goes in the exact right place, and it makes setup and teardown take five times longer than it should, should be otherwise. And the problem is, a sane person, a rational person, would immediately ditch it and just replace everything with baggies. So it's like, oh, you're purple, here's your stuff, clunk. But it's so pretty and so, like, <laughs> it, it's like I'm being forced to, to continue down an inefficient path by virtue of how much effort was put into this insert. I just want us all to get the same page that the goal of an insert, if you're going to make a custom insert, should be to facilitate setup and teardown. And even within the same company, we have radically different approaches to this. So, again, the game trays in Wonderland's War make, make the setup infinitely longer than it should. Whereas the game trays in Unsettled make the setup almost trivial. Yes. Here's the tray it's already set up. Here's the tray it's already set up. Here's the tray it's already set up. We're good. Yeah, I can't wait to show you Carnegie. Same thing. Players, here's your things. Here's the thing for the for the side of the board. And we are now ready to play. But you'd think we'd be on the same page already, that everyone would know that that, well, that, that is the ideal. I'm just wondering, I guess game trays can't play the games before. They just have to take you know, I don't know whose fault what, it is. I mean, maybe it's know, theirs. Maybe it's the designers. Maybe they just get a bad remit. I don't know. But they're putting their name on it. So you'd think that they want to put at least some sort of input on it. Uh, possibly. I, I don't know. The only other thing, and I, I, I'm loath to say this, if we could make it so that the custom inserts could all hold sleeved cards, just so I don't have to listen to the sleevers complain anymore. I disagree. <laughs> fills me with a little bit of glee and mirth when I read the complaints and or like we saw with Stars of Akarios when we looked at the, the card tray. It's like the cards barely fit in without without sleeves. I can just imagine the seething anguish of, of card sleevers and there was no possible way that not only would there not be enough room, they wouldn't even fit in, in the slots. Do, do you know what's wild? Again, I've been on Board Game Geek for a very long time. I don't read the forums there as much as I used to, but... The way that people who suffer from colorblindness would show up and say, oh, by the way, this, this game's unplayable for me. Maybe next time you might want to consider that. As opposed to the sleevers are like, this insert doesn't fit my brand of sleeves. 
It may fit those other sleeves, but not my brand. One out of ten, literally unplayable. It's so bizarre the extent to which the vitriol is out of... I, I, I have a certain degree of sympathy for sleevers. They're good people. <laughs> but just, uh. So I, would, I, would, I personally would like it if, generally speaking, we could all get on the same page and have it so that inserts would accommodate sleeved cards. But Agreed. The only one piece of standardization that I would like to see is it is 2022. Can we stop using pronouns on cards and rule books? Thank you. No pronouns at all? Well, you know what oh, I mean. Oh, gendered pronouns. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. We've made impressive strides, like over the, uh, we, the, the board gaming industry has made impressive strides over the course of the past few years. I feel the gender neutral pronouns are, are the overwhelming standard, such that when I see one that, that, that isn't, and it's been published in, say, the past two years, I find it striking. I've commented on it a couple of times so when, when, when they do show up. You're absolutely right. And on that note, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are available on all manner of the social meds, as the kids call it. The clickety-clacks. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again very soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. And if you hated the podcast, tell your enemy. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.